You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. Everybody good? Fantastic. If you have your Bible or your device, you can go ahead and open that to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and we'll pick up in verse 12 this morning. We're going to be in verse 12 through verse 26. If you are new to Covenant Church, let me just say a personal welcome to you. Um, What we do here is preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we started in the book of Acts last week, and and we preached the first 11 verses. And this morning we pick up in verse 12, and Lord willing, we'll get through verse 26. And if the Lord brings us back next week, we'll pick up in in chapter 2. And that's just kind of how we do things. And and, and so we preach at the, uh, or we start at the beginning and preach our way through books of the Bible with an occasional break to have. Uh, you know, maybe a, a series around Christmas or a series around our core values, just uh, um, as 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 a refresher and an intentional time to celebrate. But for the most part, ninety five percent of the time, what we do in this hour is preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, Acts had an incredible start. Um, I, I don't have time to go through a, a full intro as we did last week, and so if you missed last week, you can go online. I think. On basically any streaming platform, you can find Covenant Church, and you can go back and listen to that. It kind of bring you up to speed. Um, but this is written by a man named Luke, who, who set out to write an accurate, historical, factual account, first in, in the Gospel of Luke, of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, but now in the book of Acts, of, of what the first Christians were all about. And what we saw last week, because in the first 11 verses, Jesus himself is either mentioned or the one speaking, is, is that this story, the book of Acts, is all about Jesus. Like, like that's, that's the gist of it. And so if you want a, a summary of the book of Acts, it's how Jesus Christ impacted these first Christians in a way that the first century world was flipped upside down. And if we don't see that as significant, which most of you probably do, um, this might bring it home to you. Like if if God doesn't use these men and women in the way that he did in the first century, we're not sitting here today. Okay, so so we are fruit of the labor of these first Christians. And so I hope that sort of brings it home a little more maybe for you. But one of the most exciting things that we saw last week was, was, was Jesus, a, a, a resurrected Lord, which I, I've talked about that Easter and then last week. So just, if, I mean, it's a big deal, okay? The resurrection was a really big deal. And he'd been on the earth for about 40 days in his resurrected, glorified state. And in the first part of Acts, it's the last conversation that he has with his disciples as he commissions them to go now and, and to make disciples and, and, and to teach um, the people in their hometown, the people on the outskirts, and all the way to the ends of the earth of who he is and what he's done. Essentially, they are to be witnesses of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then he ascends. And I, I spent some time on that last week because that, that is a tremendous moment. A, a, a tremendous moment for any Christian of any age, but certainly for those first century Christians as they gaze up at the heavens as Jesus himself is ascended to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. We can only assume that the morale of these first Christians at this point is up. It's up. They, they've just seen Jesus do what he said he would do. They've just spent 40 days with the resurrected Lord, 
and, and ate and drank with him. And as we'll see in just a little bit, he, he taught them personally all the things of the Old Testament that pertain to him. So you have to think the morale is up. And so when we pick up in verse 12 of Acts 1, uh, you might at first glance go, man, out of all the stories in the book of Acts that we're going to see, and our minds are going to be blown literally week after week after week after week, how'd this make the cut? You know, Luke, Luke you, you obviously, he was a smart guy. We've covered that. Um, he's, he's, you know, being led by the Holy Spirit. We, we know that. Like, this section is one that seems like you could take or leave. Especially when we get into the depth of the content. But this, this is a vital part of the narrative. It, it could have easily been left out, but, but, but it's this it's the short time, but it is a time of waiting. It's a time of preparation that Jesus, as he gave his disciples his final instructions before he ascended, he says, you need to go to this particular place, go back to Jerusalem, and, and you need to wait. He didn't give them a time frame. They didn't know for sure how long they were going to be waiting. But this is sort of an in-between. And so this account picks up in verse 12 as the disciples make their way back to Jerusalem. And so in verse 12 it says this, that then they, that's the disciples, those that have gathered, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. A, a Sabbath day's journey was about three quarters of a mile. Think three laps around your high school track. And so this time as they make their way, they're three quarters of a mile from the ascension spot and they make their way for this time of preparation. Look at verse 14, or I'm sorry, 13. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Now look at 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his, his brothers. Now I want to slow down at verse 14 because there's some really important language here that, that's going to really set the stage, maybe not as much for this morning, but for mornings to come in our journey through the book of Acts. They are of one accord. This phrase literally means one passion, one impulse, one passionate direction. And so to put it in our modern language, like they're on the same page. Everybody's thinking in the same direction. Their hearts are burning for the same reason. They're excited about the same person. They're excited about the same work. They, they are ready to go, so, so they are primed for this mission. So that would have to mean, according as verse 14 tells us, that there was devotion. They were devoting themselves, and devotion speaks to time and attention. And so anytime we enter a season of, of waiting or preparation, devotion really is a key element. Not, not only are they on the same page, but, but, but there's this devotion. So they're committed to put the time into the waiting and the thinking and the preparation. And they're giving attention, and a lot of it, in the same direction. So what do they do in this time of devotion as they wait and prepare? There are a few things, and I want to point out to you the first thing is this. And, and, and this may, you might say, well, this could have been left unsaid. Well, maybe so. 
But the first thing I noticed is that they obeyed Jesus. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 1. Verse 4, excuse me. And while staying with them, he ordered them, that's Christ, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. And then he goes on to say the promise from the Father. But in verse 4, Jesus commanded them to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. And if you connect that, and that should be a slide, JT. If you connect that with verse 12, then you see that they obeyed. Now, again, I bring this out because there are two temptations, I think, that, that could have happened here. The first one is this, due to their lack of confidence, and I'll expound on this a little bit more, but remember who's in the room. They just, they just did a roll call, and, and we could almost trace back in all of their lives a recent moment of failure, a recent moment of, of fear. So they could have disobeyed the Lord and said, okay, Jesus is definitely gone now. I mean, yeah, he's made us these promises, but I lack confidence in myself, and really I lack confidence in my brothers and sisters that are here, so I'm just going to opt out. That could have been one temptation. Another temptation could have been on the other end of the spectrum due to their excitement over what they had just heard and what they had just seen. They could have just excitedly jumped right into ministry and said, hey, there are people to be saved. And that too would have been disobedience. Now we might have commended them more for that side of the coin as far as the disobedience goes, but you could see there, there are two clear temptations there. One, to opt out because of lack of confidence in themselves, but also to disobey by going, hey, there's work to do. I know Jesus said wait, but surely um, he didn't really mean wait, wait. Like, let's go. Let's get after it. Let's get to work. Both would have underestimated the value of God calling us to wait. Are you waiting? Do you feel that God is preparing you for something? I really don't have the time to kind of go down that trail, but um, he is. You might know what for, and you might not. But as we find ourselves in these seasons where we are waiting, it's important to couple preparation with the waiting and to trust that the Lord is active. He's not idle. He's working while we wait. And some of the best hope for the future is to commit ourselves to the season of waiting and trust that the Lord is preparing us for exactly what we need for the future. God is doing a valuable work when we wait patiently for what He has for us. And in some situations, the best thing for our future is to obey and work where God has placed us as we wait. So to kind of put a bow on this little thought or this point is that they saw the value in, in, in the waiting. And so they obeyed and they walked into the waiting, but they made the most of the waiting. And one of the ways they did that is they were committed together, which is the second thing that jumped out to me. Again, this is setting the stage for future sermons, but we see this right off the bat. They stayed together. Why? This isn't rocket science. People need people. Um, one of the surefire ways to find yourself feeling lost and depressed and anxious and fearful is to isolate yourself. Uh, 
One of the worst things that can happen to someone, in fact, is isolation. And, and so in order for us to grow intellectually, socially, and of course spiritually, we need people. Christians need Christians. Socially, it's true that people need people, but let's, let's bring it home to our context. Christians need other Christians. Now, I'm, I'm not pretending like, like this Christian-to-Christian relationship is a cakewalk. I thought I might get an amen there. I mean, I'm, if you're new to covenant, look, we, we put a high value on Christian-to-Christian relationships, but we're not pretending like they aren't messy. There's a reason it's called gospel community, because it requires the gospel for us to stay in community. Like, like that's the unity. Like, there, you're going to get your feelings hurt. Like, you're going to be offended. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to think high of someone who, who fails you at, at, at some point. And so that's when the gospel comes in. Actually, the gospel's already there. But that's when we apply the gospel to those relationships. And we love, as Jesus commanded us in John 13, to love as we have been loved by him. Which starts with an offense. And so we throw gospel community around a lot without really thinking about the fact that it requires the gospel for us to get along for long periods of time. So they obeyed Jesus. They stayed together. The third thing that we see in verse 14 is, is that they, they prayed. Now, it, obviously, it's significant that they prayed because prayer ex- expresses really more than anything else that we can do as Christians towards the Lord our need for him but I couldn't help but imagine and I think this was my sanctified imagination hopefully so what this time of prayer must have been like considering what they just seen I mean this group had been privileged to see with their eyes you with me like, like they, for, they saw the resurrected Christ and so I'm sure there was excitement. I mean, they had just witnessed Jesus in his glorified state teaching them. They fellowshiped with him. He himself had commissioned them. They had just seen him ascend. And, and so I'm sure there was gratitude. I'm sure there was praise. I'm sure there were petitions. I, I mean, I, I don't know what all they prayed, of course. I'm, I'm sure there was this begging for the Holy Spirit to hurry up. Like, come on, it's, it's time, we're ready. But I think there was probably also confession. Maybe even some doubt. Not, not again, not, not in the Lord per se, but in themselves. This group of now 120, they'd been through a lot. Look at verse 15, just how it starts. In those days, Peter stood up. You remember Peter's story? I mean, just about 40-ish days earlier, he found himself in a circle of Christ's enemies. And one of them says, Hey, you're one of Jesus' disciples. Like, I recognize like, how you talk. No, not me. That's one. Second time, hey, hey, aren't you one of Christ's disciples? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the guy. It's twice. 
And according to the gospel accounts, even at one point, a, a young girl. And again, I, I, this is my imagination here, so, so take that for what it is. Maybe pulls on his robe. Hey, sir, excuse me, aren't, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? No, I, I, I don't know him. I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you're talking about. Just 40 days. But, but Peter at this point had been publicly, by Christ himself, restored. He'd been restored by the resurrected Lord who sought him out. Peter had gone about his way. And so that's why I say like this, this prayer time, I, I think it's healthy for us to think about it j- just like we would think about our own times of prayer together. For some of us, we're on cloud nine. Some of us are scared to death. Some of us are going, I don't know if I can do this. I just messed up. And so Mr. Tough Guy, Peter, had just folded under pressure. And so surely in their hearts, maybe it came out audibly, part of their prayers are wondering if they can do it. Now, now, now let's read on and, and, and I'll kind of hopefully take you with me on this journey as to why I think this was something that was there. Like this was present in their thinking. First of all, Peter's the one that stands up. But listen to what he says down in verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning who? You got this Judas factor. I mean, not only had, you know, in, in, in their minds, again, I don't know that they understand everything, what they're beginning to at this point, but they had been betrayed. Jesus knew. Jesus wasn't surprised by Judas. I don't know if that's news to you, but we'll see more of that in a second. But this is a big deal. Like, think about what it would be like to move forward knowing that one of the closest followers that they saw Jesus choose himself had just betrayed him and sold him. And in their minds, the reason he was killed. What happened with Judas? Could there be another traitor among us? Well, where do they turn? Where do they look? Well, look at verse 16, and we see another thing that they do in preparation. First, they obey, they stay together, they prayed, and and this is the appropriate response. Listen, to hear from the Lord. If you're here this morning and you say, hey, I want to hear from God. Well, this is, this is how you hear from God. They looked to Scripture. In verse 16, Peter says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And he goes on in verse 17 and verse 18 and some following verses to speak of what the Old Testament said of what they had just experienced. So, But before I, I get to that, I want us to just think about the fact that they look to Scripture because there's, there's two things that go together in the Christian life. The first one is prayer, which is when we talk to God. And the second one is Scripture, which is when God talks to us. The Bible is God speaking to us. The Bible is the primary way that God speaks to us. Now, again, I know you're probably going, well, well uh, I mean, the, and you may use this language, but the Lord spoke to me in a different way. I would be careful. I would be careful. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not denying your experience. I'm not whatever. But whatever the Lord speaks to us has a filter. And if it's inconsistent with what his word says, then I can 100% guarantee you it's not from God. 
This is the way that God speaks to his people. So if you're looking for signs and you're looking for billboards and you're looking to the trees and to the birds and to the whatevers and, or, or, or to so-called prophets to give you a fresh word from the Lord, let me just get you to pump the brakes on that and open your Bible and hear from God. And so it, it is significant that they look to Scripture, but this is new for them. How did Peter know this? Peter knew the Peter was a Jew. He knew the Old Testament, but now what, what's Peter doing? He's connecting some dots, isn't he? How did Peter get to a place where he could do this? Well, I want you to look back with me at Luke 24, just a few pages to your left, beginning in verse 25. Luke 24, beginning in verse 25. This is Jesus after he's resurrected on the road to Emmaus. And I'm going to pick up midway through this scene. It says, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now listen to what Luke tells us in verse 27. Now this is fascinating considering the fact that Luke wrote this gospel and Luke wrote the book of Acts. Because we know what he's about. We know that he wants to give us the facts and the, and the accuracy of his writing is unmatched. In verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. I don't know what parts of Scripture you're a little bit envious that you weren't there for. But this is, this is number one for me. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to hear Christ Himself expound and teach on the Old Testament Scriptures that were all about Himself. Look down at verse 32. And they said to each other, well, well, look at 31. This is critical. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. Verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts, this is what I'm jealous of, to be honest. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? As we will see in all the sermons recorded in the book of Acts. They have a theme and it's Christ. But they have content and it's scripture. Which is true of any good sermon even still today. And so as they wait and as they prepare for the Holy Spirit to come. This is an essential piece to the puzzle. So again, there is direct application for us. I'm not saying it's a one-to-one ratio, but as we find ourselves in a season of waiting, which we are until Christ returns, like what are we to be about? We are to obey. We are to stay together. We are to pray, and we want to hear from God and be encouraged by His promises. We look where? To Scripture. And so that's exactly what they did in these few days in between the ascension and when the Holy Spirit came. Now quickly, let's, let's, let's skim through, starting in verse 17, speaking more specifically about Judas here. 
for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, verse eight, verses 18 and 19, you might have thought like when Brandon read it in the call to worship, wow, man, there's something about bowels spilling out in the field called blood that doesn't really stir my heart towards worship. So, so this is graphic. This is graphic. And, and if you compare it with Matthew's account, it, it's not exactly the same account that Matthew gives. We According to Matthew, Judas goes and hangs himself. So it doesn't mean they're contradicting. It just means that, that he did go hang himself. And then this also happened in some, at some point in this event around Judas' life. Verse 18, now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. So evidently the money that he received from selling Jesus, selling him out, essentially, he bought a field. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadema, that is, field of blood. Remember, there's, there's this, if they didn't have it, we, we should. This, this thinking of, but what do I do with this? Well, 20 begins to let us know. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So, so, so this is what he's, he's pointing out. Is that this, this Judas thing, according to scripture, had to happen. It was prophesied before it happened. Now, not only was it prophesied that Judas would betray and that Judas would kill himself. But it was also prophesied that Judas had to be replaced. Which is where the scripture is, is heading. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So we've talked a lot over the last couple of years, especially about this apostolic ministry. There aren't current day apostles. And what we have here in Acts 1 is, is, is what it means to be an apostle. It's somebody who had to have seen Jesus firsthand, an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, that's who they were choosing from, okay? And so evidently, as we'll see, they have two guys that meet those qualifications, verse 23, and they put forward two, jo- uh, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And verse 26 may come as a shocker to you. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Do you congratulate Matthias? You sort of feel bad for, what is it, Joseph, Justice, Barsabbas? I feel like they may be like, you had too many names, dude. Like, 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 we need, that's confusing for everybody, okay? And, and maybe he threw, th- like, like, so this casting lots, it's equivalent to our putting names in a hat, shaking it up and drawing them out. And obviously, Barsabbas, Joseph, what all was it? Justice had an edge if he put three names to Matthias's one. But isn't this interesting? First thing to say is this isn't prescriptive. We're not to see this and go, That's how we make decisions. Flipping coins. There's Old Testament precedent for this. 
And in the Old Testament, the prophets and the rabbis, they would often cast lots because this is what they were banking on and believed in wholeheartedly. And as Solomon wrote in Proverbs, even the casting of lots, the rolling of the die, is in the Lord's hands. So they have two men who are equally qualified, and they trust that the Lord knows their hearts, and they are so banking on the providence of God that they're comfortable by casting lots. And that, in their mind, is the way that the Lord would show which one that he desired. Oddly, we don't hear anything else about Matthias. This is it. I don't have an explanation for that, but we did see that Scripture had to be fulfilled in this way. Now, I, I, w- I want to wrap up with two big takeaways. First is this. These early Christians clearly had a specific understanding of God. The fancy word for that is theology. The first thing that I notice, and and I I hope you see it as well, and I, I couldn't help but notice, the first thing that I notice is that they believe that God is sovereign. And if you want a good definition for sovereign, I think Scripture is the place to go to define when we can. Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. Pretty comprehensive. This is speaking of the Lord. From him, to him, and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That, now, again, let's, let, let's, let's recap. In their theology and understanding. First, the fact one of the things that, that show that they believe that God is sovereign is the fact that they prayed. I mean, brothers and sisters in Christ, what, what are we doing and what do we believe about God if, if we're praying to a God that we don't believe has the power to be God? If, if he's not sovereign. I, I mean, what if our prayers are going to a God who's waiting for us to say it just right so that we can somehow in our power manipulate him and his plan and his understanding so that he could go, hey, thank you, Hank, thank you for praying that. I didn't think of that. They prayed. They showed that they believe in a sovereign God as they acknowledge His word. And this is critical for them moving forward. Judas was not an oversight. That's a really big deal. Now, I know that brings questions in our minds that we may not understand. Because I have them. But what is undeniable in Scripture is that Judas was not an oversight. God, Judas didn't sneak up on Jesus. Judas was ordained to do that. While simultaneously, Judas got what he wanted. There's an eerie, eerie little phrase. Trying to find it exactly. But it essentially says, oh, into 25. Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Judas wasn't an oversight. That's going to give confidence to these early Christians. They also acknowledge that the Lord knows hearts, showing that they trust that the Lord is sovereign. I mean, we just spoke of the fact that they're casting lots, relying fully on 
the providence of God. So their understanding of God is that he was currently ruling and reigning. And what they've just seen and heard from God in the flesh was also promoting the fact that this God is fully aware of everything. And as Romans says, from him, through him, and to him are all things. But not only did they believe God is sovereign, they also had received his grace. If you look at the roll call of these first Christians, think of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Was there a more unlikely candidate to mother the Messiah? And, and I don't say that back. She, she was surprised. She, she was as surprised as anybody. Think about Thomas. We dealt with Thomas on Easter morning. Thomas is, is in this group. Thomas has, has, I mean, he just, he doubted, he doubted, he doubted. The Lord appeared to him, and, and then he believed. I've already talked to you about Peter and his difficulties. And, and surely there were more, surely there were more in this group of 120 that had personal testimony of, of going, hey, I shouldn't be here. In fact, Jesus' brothers are mentioned. The last time they're mentioned is in Mark 3.21. And you know what we learned there? That they said, he, Jesus, his brothers say about him, we need to do away with him. He's a madman. But here they are. Why is Thomas there? Why is Mary there? Why are his brothers there? How'd Peter make the cut? Why are we here? Grace. They believed in a gracious God. There's an urgent question that may be on your mind. But, but these young Christians, like they and we, we need to know for sure that we're not going to make a shipwreck of this thing. <laughs> right? Because if, if, if we can make a shipwreck of this thing, then there's a really good chance for a shipwreck. So the urgent question is, is how can we be sure that grace will triumph for us and in our lives and in the future? How can we be sure that we will sustain and that we are brought safe to heaven? Well, before I give the, you know, what I believe is, is the answer, I, I want to address the fact that, that some of us may see God's sovereignty being incompatible with His grace. You might say, well, if, if God is all-powerful, then He can't be all-good. And we're basing that on our experience because of things that we've seen that are really hard and dark and painful and been through. And I'm not negating those. I'm not discrediting those. I, I've, I've, I've been through them, I, I like, and, and you have too. Some of you infinitely more than I have. But it, it feels like if God is this powerful and He's also good, there's like this unknown land that I don't really know exactly what to, to do with and it's confusing the Bible teaches us that God's sovereign grace does not always prevent pain in fact friends the Bible goes out of its way to show us that God's sovereignty and God's grace don't always prevent pain Rather, it orders and arranges and measures out our pain. And then, in the darkness, 
we see a light that's infinitely brighter than it would have ever been without the pain. All the questions aren't answered. But that's the hope. And so the answer to the urgent question, the answer to the urgent question is uh, how can we be sure that we will sustain and are brought safe to heaven? The, the answer for God's people is His sovereign grace. It, it, it's the grace that overcomes all of the ordained obstacles like the Judas-type situations in our life. It's the, it's the sovereign grace of God that preserves our faith and our holiness and assures that we will be brought safely home. The, the only sure confidence for our future is that God is sovereign and that He's gracious. That, that is the only hope that we have. And so for the church, God has the last word. And it's grace. That's the word. And so if you're wondering, how? How is this going to work? How am I going to continue? How am I going to move forward? How can my child be saved that's wayward? How can my spouse come to know Christ? How can the gospel advance when there's a culture that's increasingly dark? The hope, the answer, the boast of Scripture, and the hope for these first century Christians, and the hope for us today is that we have a God who is sovereign and 100% in control. And He's also a God that has chosen to show His power and to demonstrate His love and His mercy in the way that we receive it as grace. And so these early believers are primed for the task because they believe in and have been recipient, uh, recipients of the sovereign grace of God. Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.